You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In a presidential debate before the 2012 election, Barack Obama called attention to a remark that his opponent, Mitt Romney, had made a few months earlier. Romney had said that Russia was the biggest geopolitical threat to America. The 1980s are now calling, Obama joked, to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Just a few years later, it was Obama's fellow Democrats who were warning us that Russia was a dire threat to American democracy, whereas most of Romney's fellow Republicans dismissed their concerns. Whatever your politics, one thing is clear, Americans are not done with Russia yet. Russian culture and politics remains foreign to most of us, though. Our guests today on Christian Humanist Profiles want to help us understand them, using the work of Nobel Prize-winning Soviet defector Alexander Solzhenitsyn as a kind of case study. David P. Dievel is visiting professor of Catholic Studies and co-director of the Murphy Institute at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jessica Houghton-Wilson is the Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas. Their new edited collection is called Solzhenitsyn and American Culture. It's out now from Notre Dame University Press, and I'm delighted it's brought them here on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, folks. Yes, thanks for having us. Well, Solzhenitsyn was at one point one of the most well-known authors in the West. His star has faded a bit over the past few decades. Is that just because the fall of the Soviet Union has made Americans feel that his work is less relevant, or is there some other factor in play? This is going to be tough going back and forth, huh, David? <laughs> yeah. Thank God for editing. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, well, we can bat the questions around. Um, I can start, but David is more intelligent on these things than I am. So I'll give my answer, and then <laughs> he can give his. Um, from my perspective, I think Solzhenitsyn actually fell out of favor way before um, the Soviet fell because of the things that he said against the West. I think really the reason he lost attention was when he started indicting Western culture for the things they actually loved about itself. Um, things like having all of these options, having the better life as being equated with bigger houses and more stuff. And he saw that as spiritual poverty. He saw us Americans and uh, Europeans as those who collected all of these material things and lost uh, the thickness of our souls. Yeah, you think that's you I think agree. that's fair? Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah, absolutely. I mean, even at the time of the Harvard address in 1978, I'd say already uh, many Americans were sort of tired of him because he did criticize exactly the things that uh, Jessica brought up, and he was also very clear that uh, for many of the sort of progressives, um, they really weren't as far from sort of the Soviet communist model as as they would like to say so. I mean, he often said that. You know, once you play the socialist game, it's a kind of a bidding war and it's always going to end in who can promise the most. And so people didn't like that either. And so he became a kind of, a, you know, a sort of he was somebody not to listen to too much because he is kind of theocratic, uh, you know, Slavify. All of these sorts of terms started to get batted around. Yeah, I think his 1978 address, he called us uh spiritually mediocre he said there's no true moral responsibility oh my gosh where's the lie though <laughs> yeah um so you know he he was telling the truth about us in a way that we just didn't want to hear and um and so he became yeah he became unpopular way before the the wall fell you know what's interesting though is that uh in the first volume of between two millstones the uh memoirs that he wrote of his time in the West. The, the second one has just been released by Notre Dame Press, you know, only a couple of weeks after our book, which is great timing. Uh, but in the first volume, he talked about the responses to that address. And he got letters from all over America with ordinary people saying, oh, yeah, you've you've identified the problems in our culture. You've hit it right on the head. It might be better to say not that he fell out of popularity, but he fell out of popularity with certain crowds mm -hmm. and especially with uh, the media who at first uplifted him as this dissident from Russia and how brave he was to come over here. They uplifted and extolled him for that and um, assumed that he would just welcome America with open arms because we were so unlike where he had come from. And when he didn't, and he actually denounced us for some of our own vices, that's where he got picked up with certain crowds, right? And so that's where he becomes more associated with Christians. He really was drawn um, even to the Protestant churches in America, but also with the Catholics. 
he found his own community um, in a in just a different group. I mean, that's why he receives the Templeton address too. I mean, the Templeton uh, Prize. Yeah. So let, let's uh, let's talk about that. You you note that in in one of your essays in this in the volume, Jessica, that his reputation now rests largely with American conservatives. Um, is is it just because he's willing to criticize things about? Uh, about things that progressives in this country like, because it, it seems to me he also <laughs> criticizes a lot of uh, kind of conservative, or at least Republican, let's say, um, shibboleths as well. Oh, yeah, I think you have to distinguish between the two. For him, he was not denouncing, um, he would be denouncing both extremes of political parties as ideological, right? When they go, when ideas move into all encompassing where it's almost a, a vortex in which you can't hear opposing voices, it becomes ideological. So when a certain political party becomes that way, he's going to denounce them. But he does get picked up by those who want to conserve, that their impulses towards tradition, their impulses towards conserving good things, that they use the language like truth, goodness, and beauty, um, that they speak they speak alongside him with an importance of language and multi-voices. And so that kind of crowd does not necessarily need to be Republican or Democratic, but to have that impulse towards conservatism, that's where he usually gets picked out. One of the, one of the aspects of this is that, uh, you know, for a certain amount of both Republicans and Democrats, there's a kind of uh, cosmopolitan international cast uh, to thought on both sides. I mean, in many ways, the, re the responses uh, by Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and various other figures, although in different ways, are reactions to that that sort of nationless world. Um, Solzhenitsyn, I think, was one of the reasons he fell out of out of favor, particularly with progressives, but also with some conservatives. He he was somebody who believed in the importance of nationhood and in the importance of, of real communities. And he was not a fan of the United Nations or of the Davos crowd or anything else like that. And, you know, controversially, he was a kind of a mild supporter of Vladimir Putin. And that's what many people really don't like about him, both on the left and the right. Uh, but he thought that the sort of the mild uh, autocratic uh, temptations of, of Putinism were actually far from ideological totalitarianism, uh, but they were also, in some ways, a corrective to to the sort of the stateless, even, you know, I mean, I'm a free marketer, but many people will talk as if, well, borders don't matter. And we all we just need to do is is sell stuff and buy stuff. And Solzhenitsyn did not believe that that was the end all be all. Mm -hmm. Who do you imagine your audience to be with this book? I mean, obviously, you're trying to bring Solzhenitsyn back into public consciousness. But who do you think is going to be most willing to hear that? in contemporary American society. I may I be more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if David's as optimistic as I am. I I'm always wanting to bring up people who warn us against uh the dangers of getting sucked into our present as though it is the only reality that ever existed. So if we are able to bring back some of these prophets from previous generations and put them at the forefront, it gives us a better perspective on our own time. So for me, my my reach is very broad. I, I want people to recognize uh, that we don't just need to listen to current political or cultural critics, but we need to have more of a breadth and a depth um, by going back to Solzhenitsyn. So ideally, I would hope this is not a classroom book. This is not a Solzhenitsyn expert book. Um, this is a book for amateurs. In, in other words, like those who actually love good things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what, that's what I would hope. Yeah, John Wilson, who wrote the uh, the foreword to our book, uh, wrote a nice little piece at the First Things website recently, a little more extensively on the book. And that's one of the points that he made is that really what, what this book is good for is people who already know something about Solzhenitsyn, but not a whole lot. But he, th he thinks that people who are, are scholars will probably learn something, as well as, as people who just know the name or have read one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich or, you know, uh, he thinks that it's a, it's a great opening. And I, th I think it is too, because it has a breadth to it and it introduces different aspects of the questions, both thematic, but also in terms of the works themselves. Do you think there's use that 
contemporary political liberals and leftists can make of Solzhenitsyn's work, or are they right to see him as someone who belongs to the traditionalists? I think he's a look. Here's the thing. I think he's a true liberal in one sense. Um, and so I think that many people who are kind of liberal left a little bit can still gain from him because he understands the importance of liberty. I mean, despite what I said about him being a kind of a nationalist, that didn't mean that he he thought that, you know, the 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 aristocrat should rule in the in the big house on, in the area. He really was a fan of that great sort of democratic spirit that he encountered when he lived in Vermont. And he thought that. Uh, he thought that uh, many of the Western traditions were wonderful. The, the difference is he understood that for a true kind of liberal polity and a kind of liberal society, you need to have something deeper underpinning it. Um, he's what one of our contributors, Dan Mahoney, would call a conservative liberal uh, who believes that absolutely human freedom is important, autonomy in a certain respect, um, self-interest in rightly understood but you have to rightly understand them. And I think people who are open on the left can see in him some some truth. They're not going to probably go all the way, but I think that they have much to gain. I think the only hurdle that is going to prevent some people from listening to him is his emphasis on moral responsibility, on goodness and evil, on concepts that have become just out of vogue. Um, for him, you know, in his Templeton address, he famously states men have forgotten God. That's why all these things have happened. And so when it continually becomes an embarrassment to talk about good and evil and we can only talk about whether something is legally right or wrong, people are going to shut their minds to the things that Solzhenitsyn has to say because he's always going to talk on a metaphysical plane as well. Right. right? So he saw our contemporary situation as revelatory of things that are deeper and that are symptomatic of the state of our souls. Right. And so anybody who's uncomfortable with that language is going to be turned off by him. I, I just reread Terry Eagleton's 2003 book, After Theory, and it, it seems to me that he and Solzhenitsyn share an awful lot of um, kind of moral ground. I mean, really, what they're what they're both arguing for is that global capitalism and, and I, I guess global authoritarianism as well kind of destroys the things that make people human, be those embodied communities or be they you know, the ability to talk about morality at all. So it, it, it seems to me that the kind of left traditionalism represented by Eagleton and people like him uh, might do well to rediscover Solzhenitsyn. Look, one of the contributors to our our book, Walter Moss, is I would say he's a kind of uh, left wing Catholic of sorts. He's a, at least in the sort of the Dorothy Day Thomas Merton school of, uh, you know, spirituality and viewpoint. And he sees much in Solzhenitsyn, just as did many of those uh, sort of figures. And Eagleton himself is a is a lapsed Catholic who seems to still hold on to quite a bit of the uh, the ideas and the, the mental framework that he grew up with. Right. right. Yeah. And I if, if I could add Dale, um, Dale Peterson as well, who writes on the influence that the Russian writers had on African-Americans um, and the writers you know, who basically saw that um, that spiritual depth that was necessary to confront oppression. So there, you know, there there's a witness in Solzhenitsyn that I think a lot of people are going to be drawn to, whether they're from the left or the right. And uh, our our book tries very much to hold a multiple of viewpoints in the same way that I think Solzhenitsyn work offers us a multiple of viewpoints. Um, so our book is not aimed at conservatives or aimed at liberals. I love the way that David just talked about uh, Solzhenitsyn being a conservative liberal. We tried our book to actually enter the discourse that way as a conservative liberal discourse. Well, and one of the one of the advantages to reading someone who is number number one dead from a, from an earlier time and number two not from your culture is that he he does transcend the, what you think of as built-in divides, right? So so of course he's not an American conservative and of course he's not an American liberal. It doesn't fit neatly into those categories because he's not an American and he belongs to a, you know half a century ago. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you know, Ed Erickson, the, uh, the our, Jessica's and my mentor to whom we dedicated this book and really the inspiration for it. I mean, he was a he was an American conservative. Uh, he he understood Solzhenitsyn in the way that Solzhenitsyn wanted to be understood. 
as a man for whom above all those spiritual values are, are the most important thing. And that is something that transcends our time in which spiritual values are quite often shucked off or sort of reduced to, to basic questions that might be important but are not not the most basic. Well, let's talk about um, Edward Erickson. Uh, our listeners have probably not heard of him, even though he played a major role in bringing Solzhenitsyn into public consciousness in this country. What can you what can you tell me about him and the, the kind of spiritual role he plays in this book? Well, David just wrote a piece about Erickson being a spiritual father to him, which is quite moving. And Ed Erickson, I think, uh, embodied what Paideia meant for the Greeks, this idea that you pass down the good things from which you've received and you continue on. You see yourself as part of a tradition. They're playing a role. You're not just for yourself. You're, you see yourself as having received from the past and then passing on to the future. I mean, he did that for both of us. I record, at least in the book, in my essay, that he very much introduced me to Solzhenitsyn's work. And I had never read Solzhenitsyn, even as a literature student at Pepperdine, um, going into grad school. It was not until Sol until Ed Erickson that I first read Solzhenitsyn. Uh, I felt a little bit like an imposter because I traveled to Russia out of my love for Dostoevsky because Ed Erickson was invited over by the Solzhenitsyn family. So I just kind of hung onto his coattails to go and met this family. And I had not read a word of Solzhenitsyn when I first met them. Um, and so he really introduced me to this. And that's why we that's why we did the book is to carry on his legacy. Yeah, Ed, Ed was Ed was a true, uh, true gem. He grew up on the south side of Chicago in a kind of fundamentalist family. And he ended up being a very good literature scholar. He as a senior in college, he was told you should apply for graduate school. And he had no idea what that was. Um, but despite that, you know, kind of slow start, he, he wound up providing some some major uh, work first on uh, figures like Milton and George Herbert. And then when he discovered the, the Soviet dissident, uh, we have one of his his writings from the journal Modern Age that he published in in the 1970s in our book, The Literature of Dissent in the Soviet Union. Once he discovered those figures, he he was able to latch onto them, and particularly to Solzhenitsyn, precisely for his Christian humanism. And he made he made a huge impression uh, with his first book in 1980, Solzhenitsyn: The Moral Vision, uh, such that when he approached uh, Solzhenitsyn himself about doing a one-volume version of the Gulag Archipelago, that great nonfiction literary experiment that Solzhenitsyn wrote, which was also about 1,800 pages and uh, a little more than what most Americans <laughs> want to read, right. Solzhenitsyn said yes, you know, and 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 the, the Solzhenitsyns uh, all trusted and loved Ed, I think, because of his great faithfulness to that vision of Solzhenitsyn's, which was primarily a spiritual one and, and secondarily then a cultural and, and political vision. Uh, the, the subtitle of this book is The Russian Soul in the West, and, and indeed about half of the book goes beyond Solzhenitsyn to talk about America's relationship with Russian culture in general. What are we talking about when we talk about the Russian soul, which it strikes me as a, a very Russian expression, and how is it productively different than the American soul, if such a thing exists, because that does not seem like an American construction to me. <laughs> David, do you want me to take this one? Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I can jump in. Too. Yeah. So my work has primarily centered around this idea of the Russian soul because I was drawn to Russian literature in a way that I was not initially drawn to American literature. And one of the reasons why was the spiritual urgency of Russian literature. So the Russians, when they talk about Russian soul, they're grabbing that concept from Nikolai Gogol, Dead Souls. And he was using it first as a euphemism because um, the Russian people called the serfs or their slaves, essentially, souls, and they just counted them as souls. So it was kind of it was a word that had lost its actual meaning. And so Gogol tries to recover it by bringing a greater depth to the word soul, that we don't need to just count it as what we consume, these slaves that we consume as souls. But what is an actual soul and how can a, a, a thickness and a depth of soul for the Russian people um, guide them 
more strongly, especially against authoritarian powers, against uh, political powers, against economic pressures. And so the Russian soul developed from this love of literature. So the Russians are constantly memorizing poetry from the time they are in elementary school. They, they know history through literature. Their souls are thickened by metaphysical ideas of the world, really what you see in Solzhenitsyn, um, the idea of good and evil, these eternal concepts that are not an embarrassment to them. Um, but that's where they have their, their richness. That's why they don't constantly drift away by whatever currents the contemporary culture is trying to, to move them through. It's interesting that, I mean, in our in our uh, introduction to the volume, I mean, we talk a little bit about the fact that one of the reasons why Americans should react to this is that we do have some of the same characteristics as the Russians. I mean, we quote from uh, Maurice Baring, who was one of the figures who introduced Russian literature to the West in the beginning of the 20th century. And he talked about the Russian nature having uh, a passive element, something unbridled, a spirit which breaks all bounds of self-control and runs riot, and a stubborn element, a tough obstinacy, a matter-of-factness that runs into extravagance, uh, cheerfulness, but also gloom. I mean, those things you can see in the American uh, the American soul as well. It's just that in many ways we've lost our depth. Uh, and I, I wonder if, you know, we had more depth earlier at an earlier point in our history because my grandmother's generation all memorized poetry as well and mm-hmm. new, new literature. Ours does not. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's the problem and perhaps it's a problem with the American, you know, with the American soul from the beginning. Tocqueville talked about our sort of uh, tendency to self-congratulation and also to always being on the make for a business opportunity. So perhaps, you know, our soul has some of those elements, but also weaker ones, weaker elements that could be corrected by that sort of metaphysical uh, uh, depth that Jessica is talking about. Would it be would it be right to say that Americans and especially white Americans don't really have a taste for suffering that Russians uh, that, that Russians do? Because that's that's the dominant thing that strikes me reading somebody like Dostoevsky or even Tolstoy is, uh, man, uh, they, they don't hate to suffer. Well, and I, I think they actually have the resources for suffering in ways that we don't. And so I, I don't know that it's they don't hate to suffer. I think they they don't hate. I, I think they don't enjoy suffering. <laughs> so I think if we say they enjoy suffering, it's going to sound masochistic. Instead, they understood their suffering within a larger context. Right. Um, so suffering for them didn't have an end just in the pain. And therefore, it seems meaningless. If you read someone like Dostoevsky, suffering is an instrumental good through which the God he believed in would work something beautiful to come out of it. And so, so the Russians, even while they're in the gulags are writing poetry on cigarette paper, they are memorizing it. Solzhenitsyn actually took his bread ration and would create a rosary with it to memorize his poetry. So that's where we're talking about this literature. They had the resources to identify what suffering was, what it was for And therefore, they could suffer better than Americans can suffer because we don't understand the context of what our pain could be instrumentally used for. So the suffering itself, I just want to make sure I understand, like suffering itself is not good for the Russians. They knew that, um, but they also knew how to do it better than we can. Well, but I mean, there's a there's a tradition of that in this country as well. I'm thinking of like Eldridge Cleaver writing Soul on Ice when he's in prison or in Zena Hitz's mm-hmm. new book, uh, Lost in Thought. She she goes right. through all these people who, who had this kind of contemplative experience when they're in prison. Um, but it it it, it I, I don't know, maybe it's just because you get it. You, I, I get Russian culture primarily through novels rather than just kind of imbibing mm-hmm. it. But it, it, it does seem like they're more open to that. Yeah, you know, Walker Percy, uh, American writer, he said that he always envied Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky because the things that they wrote mattered. They mattered enough that the um, political regimes put their literary writers in prison first. I mean, right. <laughs> if you're going to have your head on a block, it's because you're a literature writer. That would never happen in America. Um, but they understood the power that the literature could have in cultivating these rich and deep souls. And if you're a communist dictator, you don't want dip, you know, these deep and rich souls. You want very flimsy souls that you can persuade um, to buy things, to 
you know, eat bread and enjoy the circus, right? Like the, like the Roman regimes or as it's talked about in the Grand Inquisitor. Um, so you want people who don't care very much and are just satisfied with material things. Um, and therefore, you know, you took away their suffering. And so you're the good guy if you're ruling them. It's Gary Saul Morrison, who's one of our contributors, who has a marvelous chapter on, on social needs since twin cathedrals, the Gulag Archipelago and the Red Wheel series, which is the large multi-volume novel about the Russian Revolution. But, you know, he includes in his essay this, you know, the line, very famous lines about how the, the writer in, in the Russian tradition has a kind of prophetic cast. And I don't know if we have that, even when we think about the great American novel, we're thinking more about, I don't know, somebody who's who can create something that that sort of matches what what America is, whereas the, the Russian writer seems to want to not just uh, create a vision of what of what Russia is, but also a kind of vision of transcendence that goes beyond and that speaks to truth, uh, no matter where they come from. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because there's this we, we've talked about Solzhenitsyn's commitment to a certain sort of nationalism, uh, the soil, really. But then also there's this universalist streak. When you read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, it, it's hyper-specific, but also it feels like he's telling you something about what human beings are. And, and this is just like a test case in some ways, although it's a test case that matters. Yeah. It, well, in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, you can see that it's not a pure, it's not a pure national. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd say exactly, you know, it's about the soil. I mean, that... For many people, they hear that and they hear sort of Nazi blood and soil kinds of things. But he thought that those communities mattered. But he didn't think that goodness was was linked only to one uh, ethnic group. And in fact, in both the Gulag Archipelago and also one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, the best lines don't all go to Russians. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're Ukrainians. Sometimes they're Lithuanians. Um, he, you know, there are Jews in the Gulag Archipelago. You know, there's nothing of this sort of like, well, only a you know pure Russian soul can have this. No, it was the nationhood and the ethnicity is important insofar as it's a sort of instantiation of goodness that uh, that is present in all human beings. Yeah, you know, Chesterton has this famous line in which he says, you know, to be a nationalist would be like someone saying you know, my country, good or bad, that's like saying my grandmother drunk or sober. You know, you, you love your grandmother so much, you, you prefer her sober. And that's the same with uh, Russia. For Solzhenitsyn and Dostoevsky, yes, they were Russian. They were patriotic in that sense, but they were not nationalist so that when the wrong powers were ruling, well, my country, good or bad, communist or Russian. No, they loved Russia so much, they didn't want it to be communist. And so, they, they were able to have a distance, I think, um, that was able to see their country well and what it could be and not just accept the communist as though that was their Russian identity. They knew the difference. Right, right. The co communism is, in a, in a certain sense, a false Russian identity for them. Yes, absolutely. And they saw that. Oh, the, well, they didn't like the idea that people would talk about the Soviet Union and Russia as if they were the same terms. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. He, he, they, made, they made distinctions. And Jessica, you're the you're the Dostoevsky expert, not me. But didn't he didn't he believe that uh, Russia was going to be the country that saved the world from socialism? Yeah. And well, and the reason he and not necessarily from socialism, actually from materialism, um, because, you know, socialism wasn't for a while he was in Christian socialism, right? He right, thought it actually right. might be a good thing for a little while. And um, so what he was trying to save from was the, the false materialism in which this world is all that there is. And so when he thought of Russia, he thought of Russian Orthodox church, that he was very much connecting his version of Russia with its metaphysical destination to become, you know, the church, the kingdom here eventually, um, but not imposed by us, by human beings, but, revealed by god um so he he does and in, in that sense he sounds very dantean right dante mm -hmm. dante was able to judge the empire for the ways that it wasn't the holy roman empire that he saw that god could place on earth and would eventually in some alternate time place on earth um and Dostoevsky saw the same thing for russia that there was a hope for russia if it was faithful to god's kingdom first 
Well, let's talk about Russian Orthodoxy. There's a there's an essay in the book by uh, Ralph C. Wood, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, who is one of my great heroes, and I know one of yours too. Yep. Um, to what extent ought we to see Solzhenitsyn as Russian Orthodox, and to what extent should we see him as more broadly Christian? or theist or something else like what what is the relationship between solzhenitsyn's work and this um this particular church i think as david spoke a second ago one of the reasons the solzhenitsyn family was very drawn to ed erickson's work was because ed erickson recognized the christian humanism that was at play in solzhenitsyn's vision in ways that people had ignored before and when it comes to his russian orthodox vision he is not, from my perspective, he is not as rich in that version of the imagination as someone like Vodolotskin or Dostoevsky, who um, their orthodox vision is, is just pervasive mm-hmm. when you read their literature. Uh, he is more of a Christian humanist. He is more ecumenical in his vision. And, and you can see why, if he's talking about men have forgotten God, then all he needs is the pendulum to swing back to remembering God, right? Um, So whether or not you're going to join the Russian Orthodox tradition is not as essential to him as whether or not you can recognize that the atheist worldview is going to lead to self-destruction and only a vision um, that is undermined by a Christian understanding of humanity is going to have some sort of future. Yeah, Ralph's piece is a very good one because he identifies in there, you know, sort of elements, particularly in Matriona's home, uh, of, you know, the, the, the iconography that's present. And he identifies, you know, a kind of undertone of, of the Russian Orthodox tradition, particularly in the way in which that idea of theosis or divinization is present, and and I think that's a, I think it's a kind of a muted uh, version of this. But I think Jessica's right that it's Solzhenitsyn appeals at that those basic fundamental levels of questions about uh, justice and providence and conscience. Uh, I you know my, I I do John Henry Newman is my sort of main one of my main areas of study, and I when I teach Newman on the conscience, which is one of his biggest areas. I often am bringing out Solzhenitsyn because Solzhenitsyn so dramatizes uh, the question of conscience in all of his works that it's quite remarkable. And it's and it's appealing across a broad spectrum of of Christian believers. But even Gary Saul Morrison in our book is 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 a Jew and he finds it profoundly moving on both a literary and a spiritual level. I'm going to try not to ask you too many questions about essays neither of you wrote, but I think we've got to talk about the two First Things essays by Eugene Vodolotskin that appear early in the collection. Uh, His major Mm -hmm. thesis is we're entering a new era of humanity, one that might look more like the Middle Ages than like the French Revolution. Uh, How would you guys describe that era and how can Solzhenitsyn help prepare us for it? Because I was fascinated by those essays. Oh, yeah, I mean... Actually, those essays were probably the first ones we decided to put in the book. <laughs> Is that true? I think that's correct. I, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, um, so I am a huge Vodolotskin fan. Um, I I think Loris is one of the greatest books that has been written in 100 years, and so <laughs> getting to have his essays in here are phenomenal. Um, if I could read a passage from that essay that is just very meaningful, and then we can kind of maybe expound upon that or um, – David also might have his own ideas about these essays. Yeah, I would love that. So Vodolotskin says, let us imagine that Stalin arrives in London and proposes to institute government-sponsored terror. His proposal would not attract Englishmen in the least. The dictatorship would be annulled without having begun. But in Russia, the dictatorship was realized in full. It would seem there was a demand for it and that it solved certain problems. What problems? It is hard to understand how such aspiration could arise. Why do groups of whales, though, cast themselves out on beaches? The human mind contains irrational and frightening elements that can draw it into sinister depths. The bloody Stalinist terror is hard to understand in social and political categories alone. There is no way to explain it without metaphysics. So one of the reasons I just love this passage is I think that our culture, and it has been this way since the 80s when Solzhenitsyn was giving these speeches worldwide, 
Um, American culture and Western culture thinks that what happened abroad will not happen here. Yeah. Right. And there's no way for it to happen. And, um, you know, Gary Saul Morrison, again, one of our contributors, recently wrote a pay, uh, an essay called Suicide of the Liberals, which I think goes along quite well with this essay. It's this idea that we seem to have a social aspiration to commit suicide that we are moving towards uh, our own destruction so often without seeing how we're, how it's happening. And I think the reason that it's happening is because we're not looking at the end. We only look at the steps in front of us until the steps suddenly go off a cliff. And we don't realize that's where we were headed the whole time. Um, and so this age of concentration essay that he writes is really, we need a vision that can see farther out ahead of us so that we don't just jump off the cliff that we don't, slowly move ourselves towards suicide and that we aren't actually cultivating uh, a culture in America that is aspiring to destruction. And I, I'm worried that it, that it is. Yeah. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist by nature. But at the same time, I, there are lots of signs that people seem to be ignoring and actually accepting um, moves that direction without realizing what they're doing. You know, the uh, the other essay that he wrote for it that appears there is the new Middle Ages. And that, I think, gives the sign of hope, because I yeah. agree with Jessica. It's, it's very it's very difficult to see uh, that Gary Saul Morrison's you know, suicide of the liberals and the, this age of concentration, which is it's very difficult to see the, the light at the end of the tub, tunnel. But in a way, the new Middle Ages, the other essay uh, by Bodolaskin, it actually opens up. What is possible? And if I could summarize it in a phrase, it's that it's postmodernism without the relativism. Um, in other <laughs> words, the, the narratives of the Enlightenment are breaking down. And you're seeing this all the time. Uh, people say, oh, well, you know, all of this irrationalism, it's the end of the Enlightenment. Well, that's true, but that's but <laughs> that's missing something, that the Enlightenment built on a, a broader basis. Its developments were not sort of, you know, out of the blue. You know, bang, bang, the Middle Ages, serfs, uh, you know, dirty peasants, uh, Monty Python visions of that. And then being the Enlightenment, everything happened. No, there was something that was profoundly great about the Middle Ages. And insofar as we're moving away from the sort of the modern narrative and the Enlightenment narrative, we're going to get away from some of the shibboleths that are present there about scientific things, which are really a form of scientism. But we're also going to get back to an idea of questions of, uh, of a literary and metaphysical sort that say, well, it's not so important who, who the author is, but whether the thing is true. It's not so important you know, who created this, but instead it's important where, 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 where this thing is going. Literary things can be created out of fragments, but they're built up because we see we see uh, the connections between them because we think that there's a provident God who who makes sure that the right names get to the right things, even though we say, well, names are just something you can give to anybody because of will. So the New Middle Ages points towards a, a kind of getting rid of sort of our pretensions as a modern society and going back to something that's a little less pretentious and a little more upon God's providence. Uh, it's postmodern and, uh, you know, fragmentary and, you know, whatever the theorists say, bricolage. <laughs> but it's that all that stuff under God. Because hmm. I was going to say decentralized, but it sounds like it's just a different yeah. sort of center. No, well, yeah. No, I think that's right. Decentralized is right. But you, there is a center. It's just the center is metaphysical. Mm -hmm. uh, the Middle Ages were not were, were not, you know, huge states, but instead it was a huge, you know, even in terms of the legal frameworks, a huge patch of different things that were all connected to each other. And you had to navigate through them. But that's because they understood that the center was God. Well, uh, to, to return to Solzhenitsyn, I, I suspect most people's reading of him begins and ends with One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Uh, his uber-realist 1962 novel that's a slice of life in a Soviet prison camp. Why should our listeners read that book, and what do they lose if their knowledge of Solzhenitsyn stops there? David, you should go ahead, because your essay in the book was on yeah. that particular novel. Well, I, well, I mean, I, I teach a course uh, in our department here, the Catholic Studies Department, called The Search for Happiness in the Catholic Tradition, and I normally include 
that book um, as the question of happiness uh, under pressure. And students get out of it is a remarkable sense of their own frailties because, you know, especially when you're 18, but even when you're 46 or you can still have an idea that, well, I would be heroic. I would have, you know, I would have stood up to all these and I would have behaved perfectly well. And what one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, uh, you know, does to us, you know, in such a short frame of time is show us that, no, maybe I might not have. And that there are a huge number of different approaches to uh, to life that might happen if I were put in one of those prisons. Uh, and we get so many different characters. And what's genius about it is that Ivan Denisovich, although a good man, is not is kind of in the middle. He's not completely decided and he's not clear on what the categories are. He he understands that his freedom has been taken away. But he also knows that maybe interior freedom has something to do with it. And as he looks at the the really heroic character, Alyosha the Baptist, and that goes back to Solzhenitsyn's kind of ecumenical appeal. He puts the best lines, uh, you know, in uh, in a kind of Baptist figure. Uh, what we get is uh, what we get is a real challenge to say, you know, what what kind of freedom am I searching for? Uh, what kind of end am I working for? What what is it that ultimately makes life good? And I think anybody who reads that book with an, with an, an eye that is open to seeing these different figures and an imagination that says, which one am I, is going to be, is going to be profoundly moved to, to self-reflection and to, to question what, what he or she is searching for. Yeah, if we want to talk about what you miss <laughs> when you only read that book, I think David has just done a, such a great job about talking why everyone should start with one life in the um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. You know, when Dan Mahoney and Ed Erickson put together their Solzhenitsyn reader, they didn't include that book, and because that's usually what people have and that's what they access. Right. Um, but the Solzhenitsyn reader actually supplies all of the other things you should be reading by Solzhenitsyn. Um, and I think some of the mo most important pieces are all of his speeches. You know, his work was beautiful for getting you into the experience that seems very distant from you. Um, the suffering that you've talked about, Michael, being able to see the magnitude of what was happening over there that just, you know, became undeniable. So all of the, the lies that were com coming out of communist Russia about how great the uh, you know, Soviet empire was, uh, the reality of it was argued by the Gulag Archipelago, right, through the actual experience and getting to see all of these stories pile up. But the speeches that Solzhenitsyn has in that Solzhenitsyn reader are beautiful explications, and they give us some of our most memorable lines from Solzhenitsyn, right, that the, the line dividing good and evil does not, um, is not out there between nations and tribes and peoples. It is, it runs between every human heart. And those those kinds of um, noteworthy mantras from Solzhenitsyn uh, are really in, encapsulated in these speeches. And these speeches need to be read, especially against all of the other, I don't know, I don't want to say garbage, against all of the other um, writings that are out there that are contemporary that maybe don't have the perspective or the depth that Solzhenitsyn's speeches do. Yeah, I mean, one of the, uh, to you know, to continue to plug the book, I mean, one of the one of the great things about our book is that it includes attention to a number of those speeches, but also to mm -hmm. some some uh, areas of Solzhenitsyn's writing that are kind of overlooked. Uh, Micah Maddox uh, has has a wonderful essay on the long uh, poem Prussian Nights uh, that is uh, about Solzhenitsyn's experience in the war. And it has a kind of, has a kind of blunt honesty about the brutality mm -hmm. of the Russian soldiers. And that's part of Solzhenitsyn's power is that. He observes their behavior. Again, it argues against any sort of naive notion that he's a, you know, a Russian ethno-nationalist or, you mm -hmm. know, Slavophile snob. Mm -hmm. uh, also goes to the heart of those questions. What, you know, what do people do under pressure? We're kind of capable of anything. And that's mm -hmm. that's the basic crux of the, the human soul. Yeah. And when it, when it comes to social needs and recommendations, so I usually recommend the abridged The Gulag Archipelago really is his masterpiece but my favorite happens to be in the first circle <laughs> maybe because it's the most literary novel 
uh, of his, you know, and all of the varied perspectives that I wrote about in that novel. Um, I feel like that is just a really eye-opening book because Solzhenitsyn never villainizes anybody. He no. doesn't just um, put people into different camps. He is, you know, even David has mentioned how the truth, uh, the one who speaks the most truth in Ivan Denisovich is Alyosha the Baptist. And in um, in the first circle, you, you get behind the eyes of Stalin, which is just, can you imagine you've been persecuted by Stalin, you spent all these years in the camp, and then you're able to write an empathetic, realistic version of that character to, to not just show that he's evil and that you could never understand him. Um, but Solzhenitsyn does such a great job actually showing us behind the eyes of Stalin. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's so, very sad, the, the Stalin sections yeah. of that book, and very funny. That that book, yeah. that book was much funnier than I expected it to be because I do not associate Solzhenitsyn with humor. <laughs> you know, Joseph Pierce actually talks about this in his biography of, of Solzhenitsyn, um, that he was able to hopefully bring a lot of the humor to light, that Solzhenitsyn used to do impressions of famous people that would just have his sons just rolling in laughter on the floor. And, um, you know, Russians don't smile in pictures. And so I think that we are yeah. so consumed by our images of them that we can't imagine them being funny because they never smile when they're when they're captured on film. Um, but at the same time, they're as people. Dostoevsky was really funny. Solzhenitsyn was really funny. Um, they're full human beings, and we can't just limit them to the little pictures we have where you know they're holding these straight faces. I, I think that's a great point about. I mean, there's a, this sort of misunderstanding that. Solzhenitsyn's prose is dour because his his picture looks like he's not, you know, having a good time in the American sense. But almost all of it is funny. And even the Gulag Archipelago, even in narrating the terrors, there's a kind of dark humor, but there's also occasionally a light humor. Uh, you know, he tells the story at one point of uh, in the chapter on interrogation in the Gulag Archipelago. And he, he says, you know, how are you going to stand this? Well, then he tells the story of an old woman who apparently had hosted the art, you know, the Metropolitan of Moscow, and she's being interrogated, and she basically throws them by saying, I'm an old woman. You can do whatever you want. You can cut me in little pieces, but I won't say anything to you about where the, where the Metropolitan is. I don't have to answer any of your questions. Go ahead. <laughs> kill me. Kill me. You know, and, it, and it reads in an incredibly funny fashion that the interrogators are so buffaloed by this but, that they just let her go. And... <laughs> You know, that's a kind of joyful humor there. Well, and okay, the dark humor. Can I read the last section of um, in the first circle? I wrote on it in the book because it is darkly funny. There's this Moscow correspondent from the West. So you have this Western journalist in Moscow and he's going to a hockey match and he sees this meat truck passing in front of him. So he makes makes a note in his in his little book and says every now and then one encounters on the streets of Moscow food delivery trucks. Thick and span and impeccably hygienic. There can be no doubt that the capital's food supplies are extremely well organized. But actually in the truck, it's a prisoner transport truck that has been painted to look like a meat truck. So there is no food. What's actually inside is prisoners. And so it's, this, yeah. it's really a darkly humorous moment, kind of laughing at the misunderstanding of Western culture that they will not listen to how bad communist Russia actually is. <laughs> Well, I want to talk about your essays, um, since I have the two of you on here. It seems uh, seems unfair to talk about everybody else's. Uh, Dave, yours is called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness in Solzhenitsyn. And as the title suggests, it deals directly with the resonances and dissonances between Solzhenitsyn's outlook and that of the typical American. What can reading him teach us about our own culture? Well, you know, the essay is based on this idea that, that I got in reading so much of, of particularly his speeches, and his addresses to the West, uh, that he, you know, he loved actually the American experiment in a, in a way. And he talks about the founding fathers, and he talks about that basic sense that America was founded with, with rights, certainly, but they were rights at, under God and that they were balanced with duties. And the idea is that, you know, like we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in a way, Solzhenitsyn's critique is that we've reversed that and we've pursued happiness but a very narrow version of happiness, that sort of materialist vision that that uh, Jessica was talking about. And when you do that, when you have a re reduced happiness, um, you're going to then think differently about liberty, and it's not going to be so important. And Solzhenitsyn understood that that you have to have these categories right. Uh, then, you know, 
when you're not thinking about liberty, then life itself is something that can be thrown away. And we can start to develop what, you know, John Paul II called uh, a kind of a culture of death. Uh, so Solzhenitsyn reveals that. And in his work, I mean, what's what's remarkable is his criticisms of America and the West are, again, not from a standpoint that Russians are somehow exempt from this, because all of his work testifies to the fact that Russians fell for the same sort of materialist arguments <laughs> that that the West has done, uh, but uh, but we need to learn from them, uh, you know, in both negative ways, but also very positive ways. That that actually depth of soul is the most important thing. That self-sacrifice, that rights that are balanced with duties, are what what keeps keeps things going. Um, so I think you know what you know what he teaches us is a proper understanding of what it's like to be an American, not only from the sort of negative example of what happened during the revolution in Russia, but also just from even from a theoretical standpoint. Happiness is not is not first and certainly not in that sort of uh, not in that uh, narrow sense of material good or sort of worldly worldly success. Instead, life is first. And that's life seen as a as a gift of the almighty who has given us liberty as a test of our souls. And it's only by the by the passing of that test of the proper use of liberty that we're actually going to get any kind of happiness that matters. Jessica, your essay is called How Fiction Defeats Lies, and it deals with the novel we were just talking about in the first circle. That novel is a really clear example of what Mikhail Bakhtin calls heteroglossia, which is the ability of a novel to present multiple, often contradictory viewpoints without kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Synthesizing them into a single authorial viewpoint. <laughs> How does that sort of multiplicity fight back against state-induced censorship and official lies and other things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is probably one of my biggest things right now, especially in our culture. Um, the more that I find out about how technology puts us into an echo chamber, the more that I am wanting people to read literature to break out of that echo chamber. You know, we are just not hearing the same news as each other. We are not seeing the same ads. We are not. Um, each of us are kind of becoming more and more isolated from one another's viewpoints as we are living in the social media bubble or in the internet um, that is just only giving us access to certain perspectives. And literature, especially good literature like Solzhenitsyn's, breaks us out of that because we have to hear from, from multiple perspectives. So in the first circle, you have these prisoners, you know, you have prisoners who are Christians, you have prisoners who are, are still Stalinist, they're like staunch Stalinist, even within the camp. Um, you have Stalin himself, you have Western journalists, you have, um, you know, those like uh, Inokenti, in the Velodin, the, which is one of the main characters in, in the text. And they're all coming from these varied experiences and viewpoints and different educations and all interacting with one another so that you really get outside of your own mind. I think the most dangerous thing in our current culture is that we no longer have a myriad perspective on the world and that we're becoming more and more limited um, to our own way of, of seeing and not open to, to really being able to even talk to another side. I mean, I think Alan Jacobs says something in How to Think, where if you cannot imagine that the other side has someone who's not stupid and who's not ignorant that you actually respect and want to talk to, then perhaps you're not actually thinking, mm. right? If you, if you only see the other side as they must be evil or they must be stupid, um, then how, how are we going to have a civil society? Because none of us are, are all right all the time. And um, that's what this book does. Even Solzhenitsyn, when he writes himself into certain characters, shows his limitations. He doesn't have a character in here who is all right all the time. And, and he doesn't even write himself that way when he, when he puts himself forward. So there's, a, there's a humility of the author that I think that we have to learn from. And I think good literature kind of introduces us to that virtue of humility. You know, Dale Peterson in his essay in our book about the influence of the, Rush, the great Russian writers on uh, the African-American uh, literary tradition, it says that that's precisely what they saw in him was that ability to hear those different voices that kind of matched up with the with the the black experience in America of having kind of different statuses and 
and having to, to hear voices of one group and another and their own. And I think that's 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 incredibly important for us because we live in an age in which, as Jessica says, you have to kind of only only hear one narrative. And the reality is the only way to truth is to hear all of them. Mm hmm. It's 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 weird. We have so many more narratives now than we ever have, and yet we only we hear so so fewer of them. We're yeah. siloed. Yeah, we're siloed. Yeah, exactly right. Because I mean, when Solzhenitsyn came to America, there were you know three television networks, a handful of newspapers <laughs> that people read, and, and even they would have had a, a a kind of similar narrative among them. And now, I mean, mm -hmm. gosh. You, everybody is essentially their own um, media conglomerate. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that that would have probably scared Solzhenitsyn the most because you can be taken advantage of so much if you have that kind of limited world that you can't break in. And, you know, I, I think about this with my students sometimes. You know, you can talk to them about these great ideas, um, but they don't really even have like a peg to hang the idea on. Mm -hmm. You know, in their in their worldview, which was becoming so divided, it's almost like, there's a there's a bucket for evil. There's a bucket for good. And they try to to hang your idea in one of those buckets. And if it doesn't fit in either, you know, well, I wouldn't even say good and evil, but right or wrong, my side or their side. And if it doesn't fit in that bucket, they don't know where to place the idea. Right. And so it just disappears into this void. I think the the, the thinner we are becoming as human beings where we don't have a way of understanding the gray world, uh, the world of complexity, the world of mystery, the world where. It's not just two sides, but it's a multiplicity of viewpoints that we have to engage to get truth, as, as David said, that we're really succumbing to lies. And and that was Solzhenitsyn's greatest denouncement was never live by lies, right? Live not by lies. And and we are becoming creatures of mendacity where we are constantly being lied to, lying to ourselves and then lying to others without realizing it. Uh, you know, Age of Concentration essay that, you know, that echoes a phrase of, of Solzhenitsyn's that, that, that it indicates what the problem is. And, and his thing was the mass media is, you know, basically gets us into what, you know, Screwtape would call in C.S. Lewis's book, The Stream, right, in which we just sort of go along with things and we listen to what we're told. Solzhenitsyn didn't, you know, didn't want the TV on. He didn't, you know, he didn't answer the phone. And of course, it's like, oh, crazy old Russian man. But but really, what did that allow him to do, right? What did that allow him to do? It allowed him to write and to enter deeply into into great, great works of literature, his own thoughts, and to produce great works of art. And, you know, we're so divided by, you know, our phones are beeping and bipping. It's hard for us to, and we all know it, too. Like, I, I can't read for you know, for six hours straight, like I used to be able to. Well, why? Because we're 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 much more divided by I think by technology. Now I'm sounding like crazy old American man, but whatever. <laughs> no, that's good. So once our listeners finish listening to this episode, they should throw their phones away. But make sure that's you. Right. <laughs> but only after buying our book. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just not from Amazon. Well, you know, so this was this was the thing about Solzhenitsyn. I, I might be getting this wrong as far as like the actual phrase, but he used to say something about like being able to turn the valve, right? Being able to shut things off. For him, it was about self-limitation. It wasn't about throwing things out or discarding things entirely. So he would never be like, just go throw your phone away. But self-limitation was important to his ideas. So limit yourself, you know, turn turn off social media for the weekend, turn it off at 8 p.m., right? Or um, or read things outside of your perspective. You know, if you are um, anti-conservative, go read Rod Dreher for a day and see how it feels and try to take on someone else's viewpoint. Or if you are anti-woke, you know, go read Jesus and John Wayne or uh, The Color of Compromise and try to hear the other side. Don't don't keep yourself in that world where you can't hear the other ideas, I think would be his, his point. Yeah. Repentance, self-limitation and the life of nations is one of his, one of those great speeches that's in the Solzhenitsyn reader. And it's clear that that idea of, of self-limitation is, is a personal one, but it's mm -hmm. also a societal one. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as if Solzhenitsyn, forsook all of modern stuff. I, I gave a talk to some students recently 
on Solzhenitsyn and the, the organizer said, well, what's something that, you know, Solzhenitsyn, uh, you know, liked that I could give to the students so that at the end of this little mini conference, you know, we could like make a toast to Solzhenitsyn. And uh, I wrote to Solzhenitsyn's son, Ignat, and he said, well, he liked tea, but he also liked those little little bottles of Coke every once in a while. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, who doesn't like them? Even Solzhenitsyn likes those. But one, not six of them, you know, or something like that. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I've been steering yeah. the conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we mm. talked about here today that you'd like our listeners to know? Huh. Well, um, for me, the only thing I think we haven't hit on is beauty. You know, Solzhenitsyn was an artist, and so often we really focus on his ideas. One of the things that I tried to focus on in my essay was this idea of beauty in the work as well. So it is about multiple perspectives. Um, but beauty is really one of the only things that can confront the lie. When we have lost our ability to hear truth and we've lost our categories of goodness and evil, um, beauty can be that that kind of last rope that pulls us out of of ugliness and despair. And for Solzhenitsyn, I mean, that's what he made his entire Nobel lecture about is he really dug into Dostoevsky's famous line, beauty will save the world. And he tried to figure out what that would mean. Right. Beauty reminds us that we are not just material entities because machines and animals don't create art. They don't aspire to beauty and beauty doesn't draw out of them their more noble nature. Um, beauty reminds us, if we're talking about the Russian soul, beauty reminds us that we even have a soul. And so for, for Solzhenitsyn, you read him um, also to, to hear beautiful things again, to, to read beautiful sentences, to read beautiful words placed in the right place at the right time, um, to read a beautiful story. And, and so I think if we're going to read Solzhenitsyn, we don't want to forget that, that really absolute part of, of his work. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Jessica. I mean, it's I think there's a sort of what a lot of people fear is is that he writes these really big books. <laughs> and the reality, the reality is, once you get into those books, um, I don't know if they're unputdownable in the sort of book blurb cliche, um, but they do have a gripping power that I think we miss. And we talk about social needs and often in terms of his ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like, you know, the idea of theoretical art once you've heard the theory, you can throw the art away. But mm. Solzhenitsyn wrote mm. such that the that the ideas are present in the art. And I think you miss something and you miss you miss a joyous experience of his humor and his anger mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the marvelous depictions of these characters whom he can often sum up in, you know, in a line or two, both in the fiction and in the nonfiction. And our book is meant as an entree to to getting into reading him. So that people can actually discover that he is not only a prophet, but a, a great literary prophet. Mm-hmm. Part of it, I think, is that not only does he have these big books, the book everybody reads is one that is so spare in the way it's written that I think people are afraid that the longer books will be that spare and, and kind of dry. Mm-hmm. But when I read the first circle, it felt like mm-hmm. it was written by a completely different person. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I mean, that's why, you know, I usually have, I recommend the smaller book because it's an introduction, but you're making a really good point that maybe I should introduce people just by throwing them into the deep end because in the first circle is, is a much more beautiful book than Ivan Dovnisevich. Yeah, I mean, Ivan Dovnisevich is a great book. I, everybody should read it and you can read it very quickly because it is so sparse, but it, it, <laughs> it doesn't seem representative of his prose to me from what I've read. Right, and yeah. I haven't read all of the, the Red Wheel, um, but that's, the one that everyone just raves about. I've only read the first November 1917. 19, what was November? <laughs> August 19, I think is the first one. That's yeah, kind of, that was pre, a long the pre, time ago. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it, you, one thing is, if you take a look at the Solzhenitsyn and Reader that was, you know, that Jessica brought up before, a wonderful mm-hmm. book from ISI Press, edited by Ed Erickson and Daniel Mahoney, who's in our mm-hmm. book. Um, it's, you know, it includes not only the speeches, but, you know, sort of greatest hits from the longer books, but also these lovely poems that he wrote in the 1950s, as well as these miniatures that he wrote mm-hmm. uh, that are mm-hmm. that are gorgeous. And they they are 
you know, they're short, but they're not spare. They're they're sort of delightful. They're about moments of encountering life outside. And you really you you can really get the feeling for him as as a writer of beauty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, 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 I guess I'm just going to go off on this beauty thing now because it, it strikes me that um, it strikes me that part of the Soviet realist program was the devaluing of beauty. So it makes sense that Ivan Denisovich, which is written more or less under that Soviet realism program, mm-hmm. and, and the the later books, he's kind of rebelling against it uh, with this emphasis on beauty and heteroglossia and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, Ivan Denisovich was trying to be sneaky. I mean, he got Khrushchev to publish it, right? right? So it was, <laughs> um, it was trying to follow that aesthetic and it was trying to be revelatory for readers outside of Russia and also within the regime. Um, but yeah, it had to be a little bit covert. Whereas, I mean, he wrote in the first circle while he was in Russia as well, but he had to sneak it out and it was published abroad. It was not published in Russia. Right. Right. So he was doing something a little bit different there. Uh, and I, the beauty makes sense. I mean, and this is what scares me sometimes about our culture. I tell students this all the time. Um, the government doesn't have to go burn books anymore. They've just convinced you that it's not worth your time to read them. Right. Yeah. The brave, the brave <laughs> new just, world dystopia. Right. Yeah. They've just convinced you that there's no need to read literature because it's not useful to you to make money and have the comforts of life. And one of the reasons that Solzhenitsyn always talks against the comforts of life is he, he was afraid it made us satisfied. Um, whereas beauty and literature makes you dissatisfied and long for something more. It actually, produces visions of hope it produces change and positive revolutions in ways that um if you are just succumbing to the ugliness and the despair of the world around you you're going to be happy if someone just you know hands you a mcdonald's (laughs) you know i just say a word in favor of i mean i know we're talking about uh one day in the life as as spare but it has it has a beauty of its own absolutely there's this you know there are these these little sort of uh, reveries about the Zek's experience. You know, the Zek is what the, the term for the the prisoner in the gulag. The Zek who who encounters a little bit of fat. You know, and when you're on this pure diet of this sort of strange, uh, you know, uh, gruely oatmeal stuff every day. I forget what what the name of it is, but you know, he talks about then the opportunity to get fat and even rancid fat is such a thing of beauty that you have to you have to to savor it. For a few moments, and and Ivan Denisovich's approach to food is is like this: that he he will savor his meals, and in fact, in the day, he's able to get a second meal from somebody for doing some work, and he's able to to just enjoy this meal in a way that I think we don't, you know, we we walk down the street and you know drink the the 42 ounce Coke and <laughs> shove the hamburgers in our mouth, don't even notice. And, you know, you get the sense that, oh, no, even even to have something, even rancid fat is is a gift beyond all telling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't mean to put down Denisovich's style. I think it probably does more with Soviet realism than anybody else ever did. Yeah, no, we, we, I'm not challenging you to a cage match. <laughs> oh, you, you would, I'm sure, win. You, <laughs> I just you, want to say there's beautiful pizza. <laughs> well, thank you both so much yeah. for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was a really great conversation. We've been talking to David P. Devil and Jessica Hooten Wilson about their new edited collection, Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. That book is available now from Notre Dame University Press. You can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode at christianhumanist.org, where you'll also find links to listen to other episodes of Christian Humanist Profiles. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.